Our first scripture reading today is a selection of verses from Revelation 8 and 9. Another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given a great quantity of, of increase to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar that is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the ground, on the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets made ready to blow them. Then I looked and heard an eagle cry with a loud voice as it flew in mid-heaven. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who, who abound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels were released, who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year to kill or tear of humankind. The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or gave up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornication or their thefts. Our second scripture reading is also the selection of verses from Revelation chapter 10 and 11. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat. It will be bitter to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made Better. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophecy 
for 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in his manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and will kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at the dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and those who saw them were terrified. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while the enemies washed them. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and forever. Do you ever wonder what on earth is achieved by praying? Is the world changed? Is God changed? Am I changed when I pray? At a metaphysical level, what could possibly be the mechanism whereby the world in which a prayer is said is a better world than one in which a prayer is not said? And what about this problem of unanswered prayer? Prayers that achieve nothing except offering us the spiritual equivalent of banging one's head against a wall. What on earth and in heaven's name is the point of praying? These are the questions which I would suggest are burning in the minds and souls of those in the seven congregations of Asia Minor to whom the book of Revelation was written. They were living under the thrall of the Roman Empire in the latter part of the first century and were struggling to see how their faithful witness to Jesus and their prayerful worship of him as Lord 
was making any difference to anything at all. And these are the questions that John addresses in these chapters from Revelation that we have before us today as we continue our series looking at this often neglected book that lurks there at the end of the Bible, waiting to transform the minds and imaginations of anyone brave enough to venture beyond its opening few chapters. In our reading, we heard just a selection of verses, but as always, I'd encourage you to take the time to sit and read these chapters through in their entirety. You may remember from our readings from Revelation a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, that John has just described the opening of the seven seals on this little scroll, the little kind of seven wax seals on it. And each time a seal was cracked open, we got a glimpse of the judgment of God on the forces of empire and evil at work in the world. These forces that dominate the earth and deceive people into believing that the empire and its emperor are gods worthy of worship. After the six seals worth of action and noise and violence and destruction, at the opening of the seventh and final seal, we get unexpectedly what feels like a moment of prayer. There is suddenly silence in heaven for about half an hour, everything stops. Then John sees an angel burning an incense offering on the heavenly altar. And it becomes clear that the vision is taking its readers into a scene of heavenly worship as a burnt offering is given to God. Earlier in the apocalypse, just before the opening of the seals, you may remember John has already seen the four living creatures and the 24 elders up there in the heavens, each holding a harp and a bowl. And we discovered in chapter 5 that the bowls contained the incense of the prayers of the saints. That was in chapter 5, verse 8. And it's this incense that they're holding in heaven in these bowls before God, that is once again in view after the opening of the seventh seal, when it is presented as a burnt offering on the altar before God. The prayers of the saints in the bowls are poured out onto the altar, and it's set fire, and the smoke starts to rise up. The fire of this burning incense, however, doesn't just rise up as smoke before God. The fire is then scooped up, and thrown to the earth in preparation for the sounding of the seven trumpets. As always, John doesn't just get his imagery out of nowhere. There's an Old Testament background for this image. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 9, where a heavenly being throws burning coals from heaven to the earth after marking the faithful on their foreheads. There's a further parallel between this story and that of Elijah and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel in one uh, first book of Kings, chapter 18. Do you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Elijah asks God for a sign to demonstrate to the people of Israel that the Lord is the true God. And the Lord accordingly sends fire down from heaven to burn up the, the offering that's there, even though it's been doused in water. 
Just as an aside, I once did a great children's talk at a former church on this. Have you ever done that thing where you, get, uh, you fill your pockets with like dried milk powder? And then you get a little flame burning slightly out of the way and you get a handful of milk powder and you release it. And because it's a powder in air, when the bottom touches the flame, you get this fantastic sheet of flame. Uh, I was enacting the story of the fire from heaven consuming the altar. I felt like a magician. It was great fun. Maybe I should try it here sometime. Or maybe not. (laughs) We've got smoke detectors up there. Anyway, the demonstration of divine power that you get triggers the judgment on the idolatrous prophets of Baal. And John takes these imagery from Ezekiel and from 1 Kings, uh, these images of divine judgment on evil coming down as fire from heaven, he takes that and he uses it and reworks it to help those in his churches understand the importance of their steadfast, prayerful witness in the midst of difficulty and tribulation. The fire from heaven that John sees in Revelation, is, it, it arises from and it, it comes as a direct result of the prayers of the faithful saints. And it reveals the reality of God's rule. The, the effect of this, for those on the receiving end of John's written vision of Revelation, would have been to motivate and encourage them in their praying. The heavenly perspective is that it is the prayer and worship of the saints that precedes the breaking of the seals, triggering the judgments on evil that they symbolize. It's through the events of the sounding of the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets and the events that they trigger are images designed to demonstrate the effectiveness of the prayers of the faithful, especially in terms of divine judgment on evil. The smoke of the prayers rises before the throne and is hurled back to the earth with dramatic effect and what it does on the earth is it brings judgment on the evil empire. We passed over the details of the seven trumpet blasts in our reading just in the interest really of saving a bit of time but the horrific events described in this series if you do go away and read it afterwards are problematic to many of those of us who read this text. How can it be, one might reasonably ask, that the result of prayer should be the destruction of one third of the world? What view of God is implied in such acts of vengeance and ruination? Did you know that D.H. Lawrence wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation? In addition to some of his other uh, slightly more banned writings... Uh, He articulated a characteristically negative reaction. D.H. Lawrence said, What we realise when we have read the precious book a few times is that John the Divine had on the face of it a grandiose scheme for wiping out and annihilating everyone who wasn't of the elect, the chosen people, in short, of climbing up himself right onto the throne of God. Revelation, be it said once and for all, is the revelation of the undying will to power in man and its sanctification, its final triumph. If you have to suffer martyrdom and if all the universe has to be destroyed in the process, still, 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 O oh Christian, you shall reign as a king and set your foot on the necks of the old bosses. This is the message of Revelation. Interpreted this way, Revelation becomes an imperialist text 
It reflects a desire to conquer the earth, to subjugate enemies, to dominate the cosmic order. The apocalyptic hope, by this way of reading, becomes a yearning for power. The kingdoms of heaven become victory over the kingdoms of the earth. Babylon gives way to New Jerusalem. The saints rule for a thousand years. Revelation becomes, in short, a manifesto for Christendom. In the same way, it supports the approach taken by many Christians in our time who identify Christianity with a drive for control and a desire for vindication. I can think of some Christians who long for the re-establishment of the Christian country. Let's get back when the Christians are in charge. Let's vote for the leader that's going to give us a bit of power, regardless of his views on women. However, this is not the only way of reading John's imagery here, you will be glad to know. I've said before that the starting point for any interpretation of Revelation needs to be the meaning that it would have had for its original recipients. And although the apocalypse clearly has its origins in a context of empire, it is far from certain that the vision it presents is one where the Christian empire simply replaces the satanic one. This is not a vision of radical military revolution. Although such a claim has been made countless times for it in the 2,000 years since it was written. Rather, I think John pictures two kingdoms existing alongside each other, with the kingdom of heaven offering an alternative vision for humanity, a different way of living in relation to the world and the divine. And to this end, he exhorts his audience to transfer their citizenship citizenship from Babylon where they live at the moment to the new Jerusalem where they will learn to live differently. And it's in this context that the series of trumpet judgments on the satanic empire need to be heard. The reason the saints are praying for an end to the influence of the empire on the earth is not so that they can assume control in its place, as D.H. Lawrence would have it, Rather, it is so that humanity can be freed from the idolatrous deception which leads to oppression by and enslavement to the beast of evil empire. If humanity is to be freed, the empire has to die. This is not about one small group replacing another small group. It's about one small group praying for freedom for all of us. The images of judgment, therefore, need to be heard not from a perspective of imperial conquest with one empire overthrowing another and torturing the subjugated citizens in the process. Rather, they need to be heard from the perspective of the oppressed and the enslaved. Like Moses and the Israelites living in slavery in Egypt, desperate to see release from the oppressive power that once held them captive, John wants to lead the people of God and indeed the whole earth from slavery into freedom. The judgments on the evil empire therefore ultimately concern release, 
both for the people of God and for humanity as a whole. And they are unleashed in response to the prayerful appeals of the faithful that freedom and justice might come upon the earth. The imagery of destruction, as it is described, against both humans and the created order becomes particularly ethically problematic if the book is read as an attempt to describe actual events that are occurring or will occur on the earth. However, if this imagery is read as a metaphor for the destructive effects of human idolatry, for the events which inevitably follow the alliances that people draw with the beast, then it becomes a fitting image for the way in which evil sows the seeds of its own destruction and ultimately reaps the destructive harvest of its own making. The harsh reality of human allegiance to the satanic empire is war and death and destruction. It just is. When humans do their deals with empire, the gates of hell open and everything tumbles out upon the earth. John's imagery vividly portrays these effects, but what is significant in John's scheme is that the destruction is not all-encompassing. There is still hope that people will turn and repent in response to the judgment. He articulates that in chapter 9, verses 20 to 21. So the prayers of the people of God for an end to the evil empire assume a tenor not of vengeance, but of hope for deliverance. Let me say a little bit more about this. The first four trumpet blasts function together as a set, much as the first four seal openings formed a group. And the events that follow the first four trumpets consciously echo events from the Exodus story. I've got a little table to show you this, how the Exodus event of hail parallels the trumpet plague of hail. The Nile becomes blood and the fish die. The sea becomes blood and the sea creatures die. Bitter water is sweetened. Water becomes bitter. Darkness in the ninth plague of the Exodus. Darkness in the uh, fourth trumpet plague. These conscious echoes of the Exodus reinforce the point I'm making about interpreting these trumpet plagues as triggers for freedom. Egypt... Babylon, Rome, become synonymous with each other as earthly manifestations of the satanic empire that always seeks to draw worship away from God and which oppresses and enslaves humanity. And John's concern is that those in his churches should identify with the Israelites of old as fellow travelers on the path to freedom that they should not be overwhelmed by the power of the empire, just as the Israelites in Egypt did not give up hope but carried on crying out to God for freedom and the plagues of Egypt led to exodus and led to freedom. So the people of God in John's day should relate to the Roman Empire in much the same way because the destruction of the oppressive regime is ultimately within the scope of God's eternity already assured. The emperor who rules over Rome is as doomed as the pharaoh who ruled over Egypt. And if the people of God doubt this, they are identifying themselves with the grumbling people of Israel in the desert who doubted that God would ever provide them with clear water. 
And then the descriptions of the events that follow the fifth and sixth trumpets are greatly extended in comparison to the four that precedes them. And in the fifth trumpet, John introduces the satanic agent Apollyon, who's a symbol for the emperor. John's point here is that the emperor may appear to be a king of great and noble empire, but when John sees him from heaven's perspective, he's just the king of a swarm of locusts devouring the earth for their own greed. And I can think of some empires in our world that might need unmasking a bit like that. Where have we got emperors over empires that devour the earth for their own greed? Then we get the sounding of the sixth trumpet, triggering an invasion from the east as the four angels bound at the Euphrates are released and together with 200 million cavalry troops ride forth to decimate the earth. This is John's depiction of the tragic and terrible results of humanity's ongoing alliances with the beast. Empire begets violence and war at every turn when we do our deals with empire. Violence comes to the earth once again. And then at this point, there's an interlude in the action during which John eats the little scroll, as you do, and narrates the story of the two witnesses. I have a theory that the story of the two witnesses is what's written on the scroll. And John explores a story showing how the faithful witness of the church, which at this point is dressed up as the two witnesses, is inevitably and always accompanied by suffering and martyrdom. The scroll that John consumes has a double effect on him. It's sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. The meaning of this sweetness, coupled with bitterness, becomes clear as John realises that faithful witness can only be achieved at the expense of suffering. The two witnesses represent the people of God following the path of Jesus through suffering and death to resurrection after three days. In many ways, the story of the two witnesses is the entire theology of the book of Revelation in a microcosm. John repeatedly revisits these themes of witnessing and suffering. Following this interlude of the two witnesses, the seventh trumpet sounds, and just at the end of the vision of the throne room, at the, and after the opening of the seventh seal, there's a heavenly response to the preceding events. This time it's not silence, but it is still worship and prayer. Heaven's perspective on the earthly judgments is heard as loud voices proclaim the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. We just kept singing it, didn't we? Kingdoms of the earth become the kingdoms of the Lord. Love has the victory forever. Christ is seen enthroned as Lord of all, seated on the heavenly throne as eternal ruler. From the perspective of the earth, the emperor still occupies the throne in Rome. From the perspective of heaven, Christ is enthroned and the satanic empire is already doomed. Once more, John's narrative reaches a point of closure. The time of final judgment is at hand. The prayers of the saints for freedom have been answered and those in the churches are drawn into the heavenly worship through the thanksgiving hymn of the 24 elders which we had as our call to worship. The message here is clear. The people of God are those who must learn to desist from idolatry in all its forms. We must resist the allure of the satanic empire and hold firm to the truth of the revelation that John has received that he communicates through his vision. The followers of the Lamb, which is us, just as, bit, just as much as it was those in the seven churches of old, 
the followers of the Lamb become those who, when seen from heaven's perspective, prayerfully participate in the downfall of Babylon and Egypt and Rome and whatever that empire looks like in any day and age. The followers of the Lamb are those who lead the nations of the world from slavery under empire to freedom under Christ. So the next time we turn to prayer, as we shall in a few minutes, and find ourselves wondering what the point of all this prayer is, there is encouragement here for us to see the purpose of prayer from heaven's perspective rather than from our far more limited earthly point of view. Our prayers are not bouncing ineffectually off the ceiling, achieving nothing and wasting our efforts. Rather, they are ushering in the kingdom of God, one life at a time. You see, a world in which a prayer to God has been offered is a world in which a prayer to the emperor has been denied. And if we can learn to turn our eyes from the lures of the empire in our world with all of its seductions and all of its coercions, then we are also learning to turn our lives from the violence that the empire generates. And we are bringing into being the peaceable kingdom of Christ for which we pray. It is through prayer that the lies of evil are unmasked. It is through prayer that people are freed from their enslavement to the forces of demonic destruction. It is through prayer that the people of God lead the way from slavery to ideologies of empire and imperialism and conquest to lives lived in freedom through Christ. It is prayer that sustains our faithful witness to a new way of being human, and it is prayer that upholds us when we face difficulty and opposition for the truths we are called to speak. Prayer from heaven's perspective changes everything. And so we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. So let us pray. Great God of eternal love, everlasting mercy and endless justice, we bring before you today the needs of our world. Nation lifts up arms against nation and the innocent suffer and die in the pursuit of ideologies of nationalism. People vote for extremist parties. So we pray for Palestine and we pray for Israel. We ask for mercy and justice for all those who suffer. And we long for an end to division, segregation and violence. We also remember before you the wider powers at play in that region, especially the United States, Saudi Arabia, Syria and Iran. And we faithfully hope and long for the day when voices speaking peace will triumph over those calling for further bloodshed. We pray for the Yemen, 
for those who are dying in war and for those who are starving. And we particularly remember those working to bring humanitarian relief to that country. We pray for Afghanistan, cauldron of competing tensions. And we remember all those around the world caught in conflicts beyond their making. We pray for South Sudan, trying to find a path to peace but living with a legacy of horror. We hold before you all those who have been forced to fight. And we ask that former child soldiers will find ways to build new lives, even as their victims grieve their actions. We pray also for those living with the impact of climate change. And we recognize that the global injustices of carbon consumption fall disproportionately on the poorest people on the planet. We lift the longings of our hearts for a new world where care for creation and care for the poor are at the heart of our politics rather than sidelined to the margins. We rejoice in the freedoms we have and we give thanks for the good things in our lives. We offer our prayers as expressions of our desire for your coming kingdom. And we offer our lives as witness and testimony to the new world we dream of. Help us to live faithfully. And may the answers to our prayers begin with us. Amen. <laughs>